Welcome to Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything in KOPM. Talk about...
Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5 FM. Sunday morning, the 19th of September. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host every week on Radio Orbit uh, from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Thanks to Gail for setting it up nicely with some rhythm and blues for the last few hours. And... Uh, always enjoy the program before I come in here and get my own thing going. So thanks to Gail. Hope you have a good drive home. And uh, let's, uh, let's get into orbit here right away. All right. Like I said, uh, 19th of September last week, we had uh, G. Edward Griffin uh, talking about the New World Order and some other uh, interesting topics. Tonight, we're going to kind of stay along the same, uh, same lines. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Colin Ross. Dr. Ross is the uh, founder of the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma down in Dallas, Texas. He is a medical doctor of psychiatry and um, has done a tremendous amount of research into the covert funding, research, and experimentation of mind control technologies in the United States of America, projects and operations that were underwent by the U.S. government in cooperation with some of the most respected medical institutions in our nation. And uh, I interviewed Dr. Ross a couple of weeks ago, so it's not a live uh, interview. interview. I'll be bringing that to you on tape in just a little while, in about an hour, about 50 minutes actually. Between now and then, we will do what we normally do. We'll play some music and we'll talk about space weather and what's happening around the skies around the earth these days and we'll follow up on a couple of other stories and um, just see where it goes. Let's get right into it here first. Uh, so space weather, if, uh, if you listen to this program, you know one of the first things that we do every week is talk about what's happening in the skies above our heads, above planet Earth, what's happening on the sun, what's happening on some of the planets around our solar system, and uh, it's a very dynamic place, and there's always interesting things happening, even though we sometimes tend to think that uh, it's a very static situation and nothing ever changes. That is hardly the case. Things are changing all the time, and um, we like to talk about some of those things here. So uh, what's happening on the sun? Not much, actually, this week. We've had Actually, uh, not a lot of significant solar activity for the last few weeks. If you remember about a month ago, a month and a half ago, man, we were seeing all kinds of big flares and uh, coronal mass ejections and lots of opportunity to see the aurora borealis in both the northern and the southern hemispheres. Um, the last couple of weeks or so, that hasn't quite been the case. We've had very moderate levels of activity from the sun, not a lot of auroral activity either, unless you're up in the far north or far south, uh, southern latitudes, up in Alaska and Canada, you, of course, you can always still see it and down, down south, uh, on the opposite end of the planet, you can see them too, but they don't tend to get to the higher latitudes uh, until, we, until we get that solar wind really, really kicking and 
and uh, get some particles flying off the sun to interact with our magnetic field. And that's just not happening uh, to a great degree right now. So, uh, and I, I think, uh, luckily, I can't imagine what the weather would be doing uh, if the sun was also uh, kicking up like it does sometimes. The sun is directly related to the weather that we see here on planet Earth. And um, uh, with all the hurricanes and other things that we've seen churning and burning out there in the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean, uh, they certainly don't need any more energy uh, contributed to those systems from the sun. So good to see that the sun's not too active right now. Uh, enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, there's a couple of big sunspot areas on the backside uh, developing and changing as always. And when those things roll around, we never know quite what they will bring. So uh, what else happening? The moon, I don't know if you were up earlier tonight, around sunset or so, you look over there in the eastern sky and... I take that back. You can uh, look to the western sky, and you will see a beautiful little crescent moon. And it's uh, kind of slender and near the horizon. And what you'll also see, if you look at the moon uh, any time in the next few days or if you've seen it in the next couple days, if you do it before the, the, the sky turns completely dark, you can, you can vaguely see sort of like a glow across the dark part of the moon. And you can actually sort of see the outline of the planet uh, of the of the moon, uh, even though it's not illuminated. Only that little crescent part is illuminated. You can actually see the rest of the moon. It's very dark and it looks like a shadow. But they actually call it Earth shine. And what's happening there is that the sun is, of course, opposite from the Earth. But the 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 sun is right now. Uh, delivering light to the opposite side of the Earth, I should say. And that uh, the Earth actually reflects that light as well. So the light is being reflected by the eastern hemisphere right now, and it bounces off the planet Earth. And if the moon's in the right position, that light from the Earth will actually illuminate the moon. And that's why you can kind of see that uh, uh, the full shape of the moon, even though only that little crescent is illuminated. When you see that, we call that Earth shine. They also call that... Um, the moon's ashen glow, the ashen glow, and it's also sometimes called the old moon in the new moon's arms. So check it out. It's kind of cool. Um, if you have an opportunity, if we have clear skies tomorrow night or the following night, to check out the moon and look at a little bit of earth shine, okay? The, um, when, when this is happening, the, the, I can't imagine what the view from the moon itself must be uh, when this is happening. Um, the, uh, the earth would be a dazzling a uh, very brightly lit um, object in the sky if you were on the earth. It would be uh, this blue and green and swirling white sort of light that would be very, very bright, and it would it would appear about four or five times larger than the sun appears to us as we look at the sun from, uh, from earth. And uh, it would probably be eh, on the order of 40 or 50 times brighter than uh, than what the moon is to us when we're seeing it. So it must be an astounding sight to see uh, to see the Earth glowing uh, at night from the moon. So anyway, that's Earth Earth shine. I just wanted to share that with you guys tonight. What else is happening in the skies? Uranus and Earth are uh, about as close as they get, although it's not very spectacular. Unless you have a telescope, you probably won't be able to see Uranus very well. Unless uh, it's very very dark, um, you can look in the constellation Aquarius around 10 o'clock at night, um, but, uh, but just don't bother. 
unless it is very, very dark. Okay. Uh, one other thing, Comet C2003K4 Linear. I know these names sound, sound kind of strange. They basically just name them after the individual or the telescope or the organization that, uh, that spotted them originally, that discovered them. But in any case, this uh, Comet K4 Linear has been cruising through the solar system for a while. It's going to reach what we call perihelion on October 14th of this year. That's just coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, perihelion means that's the closest that it ever gets to the sun. It's basically when the comet is coming in, they come in from these very uh, uh, very obtuse angles. They come out from long, long distances outside of the solar system, and then they wrap in and they come real close around the sun, and they kind of get slingshotted around the sun and then zip back out. Uh, and over time, most of them leave the solar system. Some of them stay inside the solar system. But in any case, uh, K4 linear is uh, just getting ready to cruise by the sun. We won't, uh, we won't actually be able to see it um, because it's on the opposite side of the sun. It won't, it won't be a, a bright object from Earth's point of view. But, uh, but between September 28th and um, October 10th, you will actually be able to see the comet on the soho Lasco. C3 satellite cameras that we talk about frequently on this show. Uh, SOHO LASCO is a solar satellite that uh, was put up in into space a number of years ago and has a um, closer real-time view of the sun and the general vicinity around the sun. And we get to see these comets when they're coming in and cruising around. And i got to tell you, uh, when you see a comet zipping around the sun, um, it's a, an astounding thing, even if you're watching it on your computer screen. It's pretty cool. There was a comet that went by about a year and a half ago. It was called V1, which was uh, uh, something like I've never seen, actually, and we were just watching it on the computer screen. But to see that thing blazing through the solar system around the sun and then heading back out is just really uh, gives you a sense of awe and really lets you know what's happening out there. There's some amazing, amazing things happening in our little solar system right here on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy and even though we're just this little dot in the middle of nowhere and there's still some amazing amazing things that we get to witness and uh, if anybody's interested in learning more about that stuff you can always shoot me off an email or give me a call here at the station and I will try to give you some more information to help you uh, further your interest and understanding in, the, in the, those sorts of things um, Let's, uh, I want to talk uh, real fast about these hurricanes. Um, there's been, as, as most people know now, a, a tremendous amount of activity in the Atlantic Ocean and in the Pacific as well. And it actually reminds me of uh, something that I was told a number of years ago by a, a Native American close friend of mine, uh, an, an elder for the Lakota tribe back in Colorado. And we talk about these sorts of things we used to. Uh, his name was Grandfather CeeLo Black Crow. And uh, Grandfather CeeLo passed on this last December, but he is still with us in spirit. And he was an amazing man, and he used to tell me stories about the changes that the Earth undergoes and is currently undergoing and has undergone many times in the past. And Grandfather CeeLo used to talk about these changes that were occurring on the planet. And this was a number of years ago, probably four or five years ago, when he would tell me things like this. And uh, he talked about the changes and said that there would come a time when these changes 
would no longer be something that uh, people like me <laughs> were the only ones who were talking about it, people interested in uh, the wild and wacky. Uh, he said that in a very short amount of time that these things would start to become things that people could no longer ignore. And that's close to a quote. He would say, people will just no longer be able to ignore these things because they will be so big and they will be so in your face that they just will not be able to be ignored. And that's sort of what I see happening right now with the weather changes and all the other changes that are taking place on the planet right now. And there are just a tremendous amount of changes taking place on the planet, regardless of whether you're talking uh, environmentally, geopolitically, uh, technologically, spiritually, uh, emotionally. There, it seems that uh, almost every area of human endeavor is in a state of flux right now. And I think a lot of people recognize that it's sort of a tangible feeling now. You can sort of, sort of feel that we're getting close to something. Exactly what? Um, well, who's to say? But uh, Grandfather Silo used to say things like that. And uh, um, on this uh, radio station, on KLPN here, we do a lot of different programming. Uh, but one of the shows that we do, and uh, you'll understand why I'm saying this in a minute, because it does sort of tie into this story, but one of the programs that we air is called Democracy Now! And uh, it's a show with a, uh, a woman host. Her name is Amy Goodman. And we air that show every morning during the weekdays at about 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's primarily a political show. And Amy's a pretty good broadcaster. Uh, she is, uh, sits quite far to the left, um, as, uh, as is her right. Uh, but in any case, it's a political show for the most part. And... Um, Amy doesn't typically talk about environmental issues. Uh, she talks a little bit about global warming, but uh, most of the time it's primarily a political show and the things like the war in Iraq and the presidential uh, elections coming up and uh, things like that are typically things that Amy talks about. Well, uh, for about three days this week, actually, the top story on her program was Hurricane Ivan. Now, to me, that was pretty astounding because, as I say, this is a political, primarily a political show, and for... Uh, for an environmental event like that to get the number one spot on her show, uh, I think that it must have been very significant. And it, it always takes me back to what I was saying about Grandfather CeeLo a few minutes ago, that eventually these things were going to get to a to a point where people could no longer ignore the fact that they were right here in front of our face. And that's sort of the way I see uh, what Amy was doing over these over this last week on her program it is getting to a point where there are big things happening that they are really big news and everybody's going to know about them and you just cannot ignore them anymore and there's more of the same we've got uh, two more tropical storms out there brewing right now i think uh, gene is one and carl now uh moving moving westward across the atlantic so whole lots of stuff going on there um my, my position on global warming and i've made this before and i'll I'll state it here uh, just to kind of go on the record, is I, I think global warming per se is sort of a misnomer. The world isn't particularly warming. Sure, there are some scientists that say, oh, this or that, and it's changing a degree or it's going to change a degree or two degrees or this or that, but primarily they're working off of computer models and they're uh, they don't have a great frame of reference as far as record keeping. They've only been watching this stuff for, while well, mostly just 150 years maximum, probably maybe a couple hundred years. We really don't know a whole lot about the climate record uh, prior to that. Um, but my position on global warming is that it's more like global change 
that's the way I describe it, because there certainly are areas of the globe, areas of the planet that are warming, but there are also areas of the planet that are cooling, and there are areas of the planet that are getting more water, getting more rain, such as the, as the Sahara Desert. The rains in the Sahara have been moving steadily further north every year for the last, well, the last, at least the last few, at least the last five, and I know that... Um, now, particularly, probably a long time, or probably for, for a much longer time than that, but certainly for the last five years, rain in the Sahara uh, has definitely increased. Um, then there are other areas of the planet that don't have as much water as they used to get. So things are just in a state of flux, and the Earth is a, uh, is a dynamic organism. If you like to look at it that way, it has a lot of other systems that contribute to the overall system. Just like in the body, in the human body, we have lots of different organs and cells that all have a particular function, and they all sort of combine to make the individual, the full human being. But the human being is a combination of all these different systems that are working synergistically and uh, inside the human body in order to make everything work. Well, the planet is no different than that. And when things get out of whack, when things get out of balance, the way they are now, the way they have been for some time now, well, change just happens. And uh, those changes are sometimes very unpredictable, and they sometimes result in uh, um, conclusions that are highly unpredictable, and sometimes things that we would never have even, uh, even considered uh, were possible could result from these things. So we really don't know what is happening with the Earth right now and the climate and uh, the environmental situation. All we know is that it really is in a state of flux. And I think that's uh, pretty clear. If you look at the summertime here in Missouri, we had a really interesting summer this year. Not very hot, very pleasant, actually, and I'm real pleased. <laughs> it was a great summer, but certainly different than what we would expect. Uh, we're seeing more volcanism. We're seeing more earthquake activity. We're seeing incredibly wild weather activity all around the planet. So these are things that I just sort of... Uh, wrap up in one title, and I call it global change. And uh, certainly there are many, many changes going on right now. So uh, just keep that in mind when you see all these different weather stories and stuff and see if it does just uh, start to become more and more on the radar, so to speak, where we hear more and more about it and it becomes more and more difficult to ignore that these things are happening because it really does seem to me that that's what's happening right now. So anyway, with that in mind, uh, let's uh, continue with a little bit of music here in the same vein. We'll be back in just a minute uh, with uh, some more information on some future guests and some other things. And in about a half an hour, we're going to do an interview with Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. And we'll be talking about mind control for the last two hours of the program. And it is going to be a very intense evening or night if, uh, if you catch my drift. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute to tell you what you can expect because I do want to put some warnings out there for what's going to be said uh, on the air over the next, uh, next couple of hours. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's September 19th, about 2.25 a.m., Radio Orbit, KOPN. This is Tragically Hip with New Orleans is sinking. The blue on the sea, blue sink and bleed in the sky, so smoky blue green. I can't foresee a Dixie Dixie, so it tan the sidewalk clean. 
My memory is muddy, what's this river that I'm in? New Orleans is sinking in and I don't want to swim. Tragically hip. New Orleans is sinking and I don't want to swim. I imagine that's what was going through some minds down there in the Gulf Coast uh, just a few days ago. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. 
All right, tonight my guest, Dr. Colin Ross. Some upcoming guests. We'll get the, we'll get get a little information out there, and then we'll uh, we'll get back into uh, some more serious things here. Okay. Coming up next week, my guest is Lucy Pringle. We'll be doing a live show. Lucy is in the United Kingdom, in England, and uh, she is a crop circle researcher. Has been researching crop formations and the phenomenon behind it for some 20-odd years, looking at this stuff long before it was on the radar of anybody else, long before uh, we heard about this sort of stuff. Lucy has been investigating it. So we'll be talking to Lucy live from England next week, and I'm really looking forward to that. It's been another very interesting summer uh, as far as crop formations are concerned. If you go online and look at some of the images and some of the things that showed up in the fields this year, you'll see that there's just some amazing things that are happening. And uh, I call it earth art. And I'm not sure who's doing it. I'm not sure anybody is sure who's doing it. Uh, there's certainly some that are done by human beings. We know that it's possible. Uh, but there are some that uh, certainly seem that that is highly unlikely as well. And we'll talk to Lucy about the distinctions between those things and, and uh, what we know about them, what we don't know. And that'll be a pretty interesting show. And that's coming up next weekend live with Lucy Pringle. Uh, who else? Dennis McKenna. I'll be talking to Dennis McKenna sometime in the next month or so. Haven't quite nailed it down, but we'll be talking about psilocybin and LSD and dimethyltryptamine and what all these hallucinogenic compounds and plants uh, do to the brain and how they're used culturally and in ritual in different shamanistic and indigenous cultures throughout the world. And uh, Dennis's brother, uh, Terrence McKenna, was a close friend of mine and somebody who I had a tremendous amount of respect for and who uh, died just a couple of years ago, back in the year 2000, actually. Wow, it's been four years since Terrence passed on. But uh, anyway, it doesn't seem that long. But we'll be talking to, to uh, his brother, Dennis, about some very interesting things and some of the research that Dennis is ongoing, uh, uh, is working on right now. William Buhlman is... Uh, a guy who writes about out-of-body experiences. And uh, William Buhlman will be on the program again within the next month, having quite nailed it down. But we'll be talking about OBEs and near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and lucid dreaming and, and how it's actually possible to do these things yourself and actually do it on purpose and actually plan it uh, and uh, do it without fear and actually learn some things about yourself and about about the nature of this reality that we live in. So anyway, Will, William Buhlman, that'll be another very interesting show coming up in just a few weeks. Oh, what else? Kent Stedman, of course, my good friend Kent Stedman. He'll be back in a couple weeks, as always. He's with us every five or six weeks, four or five weeks, something like that. And uh, that's what's coming up. If you have any questions for me, if you have any comments for me, if you'd like to hear me talk about something, if you'd like information about something that I've talked about in the past, always feel free to... Email me at orbitradio, that's O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. Send me a quick note, and uh, I don't get a whole lot of email right now. Uh, I certainly get some, and I'll tell you about a little of it in a minute. Uh, but I read, I read it all, and uh, I'd be glad to hear what you, what you guys are thinking, and I'd be glad to also hear what, uh, what you'd like to see this program do in the future. So Orbit Radio at AOL.com if you want to send me an email. Also, the website, I've been talking about the website for about a month. The website is actually up. Yay! 
The archives aren't on the web yet, but the website is up. So if you go to www.radioorbit.com, that's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T, only one O there in the middle of that, uh, in the middle there, radioorbit.com. I should have the archives up very soon, uh, hopefully this week. However, I'm trying to sort up, uh, sort out a legal issue that has to do with uh, our friends in Washington and uh, what's called the, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is not a very friendly piece of legislation. And I'm trying to... Uh, trying to work my way around that particular piece of legislation uh, to get to a point where I can archive the programs. And uh, don't worry, I'll figure it out, and we'll get the archives up soon. I will figure it out, trust me. Where there's a will, there's a way. What else? Uh, okay, last thing, phone numbers here in the studio. If you want to call me, the number is area code 573-874-5676. That's 874-KOPN. If you're outside of the 573 area code, you can get us at 1-800-895-5676. And if you actually want to call and uh, get on the air, you got something uh, reasonable to say, something uh, that might add to the program, you're welcome to call me and I'll put you on the air. That number is area code 573-443-8255 or 443-TALK. All right, so 874-5676 in the studio, 443 T-A-L-K, 443-8255, if you want to give me a call and get on the air. Okay, um, in about 25 minutes, I'm going to air an interview that I did a few weeks ago with Dr. Colin Ross. It's a miracle that I actually have the interview because it was nearly lost on the computer system here just a couple of days ago. I was able to recover the original data file thanks to Norton Recovery and... Uh, they are not an underwriter for this program, <laughs> so. Uh, but that is a great piece of software, and they saved my interview with Colin Ross. And so, anyway, it was all edited and ready to go last night. But when I came in this morning, I found that it was uh, it was not ready to go, and I'm not quite sure what happened. But anyway, I was able to recover the original file. I spent a few hours re-editing it this morning, and I'm going to air it for you guys here in just about 25 minutes. Dr. Ross wrote a book called Bluebird a number of years ago, and Bluebird is the definitive work, the definitive expose on the documented, covert, government-sponsored funding, research, experimentation of mind control on U.S. citizens here in this country and abroad. And Dr. Ross has some explosive information about this topic, although most of it is in the public record. Nobody's ever heard it before. Like so many things, if it doesn't make it to the television or if it doesn't make it to the New York Times bestseller list, uh, people tend to not be aware of those sorts of things. But Dr. Ross came across this information in a pretty interesting story in and of itself. Uh, he's going to tell that story and talk about mind control. And it is a very intense conversation. And I want everyone to be aware of that, what you're going to be hearing in the next 20 minutes. Uh, it may be a little bit difficult to listen to. Um, I did a show last week 
with G. Edward Griffin, and we talked about 9-11, and we talked about the history uh, of the United States government for the last 50 years or so since post-World War II and uh, the United Nations and some other things. And I, uh, I mentioned I was going to mention I was going to make a comment about some email that I've gotten in. Uh, I did get some responses about that show last week. It was a very intense show as well, and uh, some paradigm-busting stuff in there, some things that kind of rock the boat a little bit and shake the water up and uh, upset some people when uh, when those sorts of things happen. But uh, most of the responses, the responses I got, they were mostly good. I did get a few bad ones, um, uh, you know, claiming that I was un-American or this and that. And I I maintain that on this program, whatever is the truth is the truth okay I don't have a political side particularly I'm not here uh, pushing for you to vote Democrat Republican or anything in between particularly I think that uh, in my life I've witnessed that we that, that, that we've been done and are being done an incredible disservice by all the parties right now uh, so I am only interested in the further uh, in furthering the understanding and the learning of truth on this program. So wherever that goes, so be it. That's where it goes. And I'm sorry if I pissed some people off uh, uh, last week and probably uh, um, made them uncomfortable with some of the things that they were hearing. Uh, and quite frankly, I can't wait to see what those same people have to say about tonight's show. It's, uh, it's going to be a real intense show, and I'm not kidding. And, and it might be difficult to listen to for survivors if you're a survivor of abuse, uh, ritual abuse, or any other transgressions of that nature, um, I want you to be aware of that right now. And uh, it's possible that discussions like these lead to memory recall and trigger certain things in people who have been victims of abuse. And I want—I just want to clear that up up front that this uh, may not be an easy show to listen to and uh, just... Uh, uh, understand that as as we get going here okay but it does need to be done i think people need to be aware of these things um and uh, that's why i'm doing it uh i also uh let me let me clarify one other thing you know for the benefit of those who i may have upset last week it's not a political dis discussion again tonight is not a political discussion it is an investigation into the actions that have been perpetuated and condoned by both Republican and Democratic parties for nearly a hundred years, okay? This is all sides, both sides of the coin. And uh, um, many, many people from both sides of that coin uh, are, in my opinion, guilty of the most heinous of crimes. And I, I hold the system itself responsible. I fault the system itself, which has failed miserably and, uh, and, and and it continues to do so in my opinion so again not a political discussion just a, uh, a discussion uh, and an investigation about real historical things that have happened and things that we need to know about so we're going to get back and I'm, I'm going to start into that with a little bit of background information before we get to Dr. Ross and um, we'll come back and do that in just a few minutes in the meantime, this is Pearl Jam on KOPN Radio Orbit.
Steps on Radio Orbit, KOPN. This is Mike Hagen. And you're listening to Radio Orbit. We're talking about mind control tonight. And I'm going to lay a bit of background for you here uh, just, to, just to set the framework for what you're going to hear in about 15 minutes. In 1931, 
Dr. Cornelius Rhodes under the auspices of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Investigations infects human subjects with cancer cells. He later goes on to establish the, establish the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Facility in Maryland, uh, Utah, and also in Panama. Uh, then he is named the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, uh, named to that commission. While he's at the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, he begins a series of radiation exposure experiments on American soldiers and civilian hospital patients. 73 years ago, 1931. In 1932, the Tuskegee syphilis study begins, and you'll hear me and Dr. Ross talk a little bit more about Tuskegee uh, during the interview that's coming up. In 1932, Tuskegee began 200, actually I think it was 400, but it's documented here as 200. 200 black men diagnosed with syphilis are never told about their illness. They are denied treatment and instead are used as human guinea pigs in order to follow the progression and the symptoms of the disease. They all subsequently die from the disease. Their families never told that they could have been treated. 1935, the Pellegra incident. After millions of individuals die from Pellegra over a span of two decades, the U.S. Public Health Services finally acts to stem the disease. The director of the agency admits that the agency had known for at least 20 years that Pellegra was caused by a niacin deficiency, but failed to act since most of the deaths occurred within poverty-stricken populations. 1940. 400 prisoners in Chicago are infected with malaria in order to study the effects of new and experimental drugs to combat the disease. Nazi doctors later on trial at Nuremberg cite this American study to defend their own actions during the Holocaust. 1942, Chemical Warfare Services begins mustard gas experiments on approximately 4,000 servicemen. The experiments continue until 1945 and made use of Seventh-day Adventists who chose to become human guinea pigs rather than serve on active duty. 1943, in response to Japan's full-scale germ warfare program, the U.S. begins research on biological weapons at Fort Detrick, Maryland. You'll hear us talk about Fort Detrick again tonight. 1944, the U.S. Navy uses human subjects to test gas masks and clothing. Individuals were locked in a gas chamber and exposed to mustard gas and lewisite. 1945, Project Paperclip is initiated. And Project Paperclip, my friends, was a watershed event in this country's history. And mark my words right now, someday that will be common knowledge. Okay? 1945, Paperclip is initiated. The U.S. State Department, Army Intelligence, and the CIA recruit Nazi scientists and offer them immunity and secret identities in exchange for work on top-secret government projects inside the United States. 1945, Program F is implemented by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. This is the most extensive U.S. study of the health effects of fluoride which was the key chemical component in atomic bomb production. One of the most toxic, uh, toxic chemicals known to man. Fluoride is found, uh, it caused marked 
adverse effects to the central nervous system. Much of the information is squelched in the name of national security uh, because of the fear that lawsuits would undermine the full-scale production of, of atomic bombs. 1946, patients in the Virginia hospital are used as guinea pigs for medical experiments. In order to allay suspicions, the order is given to change the word experiments to investigations or observations whenever reporting a medical study performed in one of the nation's veterans' hospitals. 1947, Colonel E.E. E. Kirkpatrick of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission issues a secret document. The document number was 0707-5001. It was from January 8th of 1947. That document stated that the agency would begin administering intravenous doses of radioactive substances to human subjects. Did you hear what I just said? Document 0707-5001 from the United States Atomic Energy Commission dated January 8, 1947 states that the agency will begin administering intravenous doses of radioactive substances to human subjects. 1947, the CIA begins its study of LSD as a potential weapon for use by American intelligence. Human subjects, both civilian and military, are used both with and without their informed consent or their knowledge. 1950, the Department of Defense begins plans to detonate nuclear weapons in desert areas and monitor the downwind residents for medical problems and mortality rates. I have a close friend who has a congenital defect because his mother, when she was pregnant with him, was living in Utah and was exposed to exactly that in the early 1940s. And he's a frequent guest on this program. But it also turned him into a genius. <laughs> so, so there are two sides to all these coins. Never forget that, all right? 1950, the Department of Defense begins plans to detonate nuclear weapons in the desert, monitor downwind residents for medical problems and mortality rates. <sighs> yep. Also in 1950, in an experiment to determine how susceptible an American city would be to biological attack, the U.S. Navy sprays a cloud of bacteria from ships over, uh, over San Francisco. Monitoring devices are situated throughout the city in order to test the, the extent of the infection. Many residents become ill with pneumonia-like symptoms. 1951, Department of Defense begins open-air testing open-air tests using disease-producing bacteria and viruses. Tests last through 1969, and there is a concern that people in the surrounding areas have been exposed. 1953, U.S. military releases clouds of zinc cadmium sulfide gas over Winnipeg, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Fort Wayne, Indiana, the Monocony River Valley in Maryland, the Leesburg area of Virginia, their intent is to determine how efficiently they could disperse chemical agents. 1953, a joint Army-Navy-CIA experiment is conducted in which tens of thousands of people in New York and San Francisco are exposed to the airborne germ Ceratia marcosenis uh, and uh, Bacillus gliagili. 1953, CIA initiates Project MKUltra which you will hear us talk about in great detail tonight. 
Project MKUltra initiated in 1953. This is an 11-year research program designed to produce and test drugs and biological agents and other technologies that would be used for mind control and behavior modification. Six of the, one, uh, of the over 140 sub-projects involve testing the agents on unwitting human beings. Actually, many more than that. 1955, the CIA, in an experiment to test its ability to infect human populations with biological agents, releases a bacteria withdrawn from the Army's biological warfare arsenal over Tampa Bay, Florida. 1955, Army Chemical Corps continues LSD research, studying its potential use as a chemical incapacitating agent. More than a 1,000 Americans participate in these tests, which continue until 1958. 1956, U.S. military releases mosquitoes infected with yellow fever over Savannah, Georgia, in Avon Park, Florida. Following each test, the Army agents posing as public health officials test victims for effects. 1958, LSD is tested on 95 volunteers at the Army's Chemical Warfare Laboratory for its effect on intelligence. It actually had a tremendous effect on intelligence, and that's why it's illegal now. The whole LSD... Uh, uh, program that was initiated by the U.S. government. They're the ones that developed this stuff. Uh, it actually backfired because uh, it didn't do exactly what they wanted. Actually, it did, but it did some other things, too, that were highly beneficial to human beings. Highly beneficial. And uh, that's the reason that it's now considered a, an illegal substance. And at least uh, that's the main reason. 1960, Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence, ACSI, authorizes field testing of LSD in Europe and the Far East. Uh, testing of the European population is codenamed Project Third Chance. Testing of the Asian population is codenamed Derby Hat. 1965, uh, CIA and Department of Defense begin Project MK Search, a project to develop the capability to manipulate human behavior through the use of mind-altering drugs. 1965, Prisoners at the Holmesburg State Prison in Philadelphia are subjected to dioxin, highly toxic chemical, uh, and a component of Agent Orange, of course, which was used in, Nata in, in uh, Vietnam. The men are later studied for, de uh, for development of cancer, which indicates that Agent Orange had been a suspected carcinogen all along. 1966, CIA initiates Project MK Often, a program to test toxicological effects of certain drugs on humans and animals. 66. U.S. Army dispenses Bacillus subtilis variant Niger through New York City subway system. More than a million civilians are exposed when Army scientists drop light bulbs filled with the bacteria onto the ventilation grates. 1967, CIA and Department of Defense implement Project MK Naomi. MK Naomi was a successor to MK Ultra, which I mentioned earlier. Naomi was designed to maintain a stockpile and to test biological and chemical weapons. 1968, CIA experiments with the possibility of poisoning drinking water by injecting chemicals into the water supply of the FDA in Washington, D.C. 1969, Dr. Robert McMahon of the Department of Defense requests from Congress $10 million to develop within five to ten years a synthetic biological agent to which no immunity exists. I wonder if they went on with that. What do you think? You think they continued that stuff? I don't know. 
1970. Funding for the synthetic biological agent is obtained under H.R. 15090. The project under the supervision of the CIA is carried out by the Special Operations Division at Fort Detrick. Detrick is, of course, the Army's top secret biological weapons facility. Speculation is raised that molecular biology techniques are used to produce AIDS-like retroviruses. 1970, the U.S. intensifies its development of ethnic weapons. This is from the Military Review of November 1970, designed to selectively target and eliminate specific ethnic groups which are susceptible due to genetic, genetic differences and variations in DNA. Of course, that uh, same story came out in the news about a year ago, a year and a half ago maybe, as if it were new. Of course, this has been going on for 35 years, this research. 1975, the virus section of Fort Detrick Center for Biological Warfare Research is renamed Frederick Cancer Research Facility and placed under the supervision of the National Cancer Institute. It is here that the special virus cancer program is initiated by the U.S. Navy, purportedly to develop cancer-causing viruses. It is, it is also here that uh, retrovirologists isolate a virus to which no immunity exists. It is later named HTLV, Human T-Cell Leukemia Virus. 77, Senate hearings on health and scientific research confirm that 239 populated areas had been contaminated with biological agents between 1949 and 1969. Some of the areas include San Fran, Washington, D.C., Key West, Panama City, St. Louis, 120 miles to the east of me right now. Minneapolis, St. Paul, the list goes on. 1978, experimental hepatitis B vaccine trials conducted by CDC begin in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Ads for research subjects specifically ask for promiscuous homosexual men. I'm going to stop there because it's the top of the hour. You should get my drift. There's lots more to talk about. Stay tuned as we talk to Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma coming up on Radio Orbit. Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5. You're listening to 89.5, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, certainly diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. And... Uh, you're listening to it here at Radio Orbit on KOPN. We'll listen to a little bit of music, and then we'll get right back with Dr. Colin Ross on Radio Orbit. This is Fury in the Slaughterhouse. Every generation has its own disease. Fast as 
Yeah. Fury in the Slaughterhouse. I'll be featuring some music from them tonight. And this isn't the time for more of it. So we'll pull that off real fast. Anyway, Fury in the Slaughterhouse, a German band, and I'll be playing some German music tonight. Trying to match the music with the topic a little bit, the way I do on this program. You know, I just got a call during that last song. I wasn't going to do this, and I'm, it's, I'm only going to take one more minute to do it, but I just got a phone call. By the way, the phone number here is 874-5676, 1-800-895-5676. That's 874-KOPN or 1-800-895-KOPN. Uh, a gentleman just called me and basically told me that uh, all the stuff that I just relayed to you was all well and good, but it was all historical and old, and we're much better than that now, and we would never, uh, uh, you know, we, it's just a, a different day now, and that all that stuff's in the far past, and I should just forget about it. So I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to continue just real fast um, with uh, where I left off just a minute ago. 1981, first cases of AIDS are confirmed in homosexual men in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, triggering speculation that AIDS may have been introduced via hepatitis B vaccine. 1985, according to the journal Science, HTLV and VISNA, a fatal cheap virus, are very similar, indicating a close taxonomic and evolutionary relationship. 1986, according to the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, from their uh, volume 83-4007-4011, HIV and VISNA are highly similar and share all structural elements except for a small segment, which is nearly identical to HTLV. This leads to speculation that HTLV and VISNA may have been linked to produce a new retrovirus to which no natural immunity exists. 1986, a report to Congress reveals that U.S. government's current generation of biological agents includes modified viruses, naturally occurring toxins, and agents that have been altered through genetic engineering to change immunological character and prevent treatment by all existing vaccines. That's 1986. Are we getting close enough for you, sir? How about 1987? Department of Defense admits that despite a treaty banning research and development of biological agents, it continues to operate research facilities in that exact technology at 127 facilities and universities around the nation. 1990. 1990. More than 1,500 six-month-old black and Hispanic babies in Los Angeles are given an experimental measles vaccine that had never been licensed for use in the United States of America. The CDC later admits that parents were never informed that the vaccine given to their children was experimental. 1994, with a technique called gene tracking, Dr. Gary Nicholson at the Maryland Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, I'm sorry, the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, discovers that many returning Desert Storm veterans are infected with an altered strain of mycoplasma incognitus, a microbe commonly used in the production of biological weapons. Incorporated into the structure of this particular strain is, a, is, a, is 40% of the HIV protein coat, all right? Uh, that indicates that it's man-made. 1994, John D. Rockefeller, Senator D John D. Rockefeller, issues a report revealing that at least 50 years, for at least 50 years, the DOD has used hundreds of thousands of military personnel in human experiments and for intentional exposure to dangerous substances. 
1995, the U.S. government admits that it had offered Japanese war criminals and scientists who had performed human medical experiments salaries and immunity from prosecution in exchange for data on biological warfare research. 1996, Department of Defense admits Desert Storm, Sol Desert Storm soldiers were exposed to chemical agents. 1997, 88 members of Congress, which is pathetic that only 88 members of Congress care about this, and even they won't push it. Uh, they sign a letter, in any case, demanding an investigation into the use of bioweapons and, and the connection to Gulf War Syndrome. All right, if you're listening to Radio Orbit, I want to get right to this interview because we have uh, only an hour and 50 minutes left of the show, and this interview is going to take up the lion's share of that amount of time. You're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. The show, if this is the first time you're listening to this program, it's a very emotional show for me uh, because it hits home, and it's very personal because uh, some of these experiences have directly affected my life and uh, people who I'm very close to's lives. Uh, the program is not usually uh, as intense as it is tonight and was last week. Next week we're going to be talking about crop formations and we'll lighten things up a little bit and it should be actually a really interesting show. But uh, tonight has to be done. We're talking about mind control and the documented evidence of research and funding into mind control and secret experimentation on human beings, United States citizens, over the last 50, 75, 100 years by agencies of the U.S. government. My guest is Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute of Psychological Trauma. This is the interview that I taped with him a couple of weeks ago. You're very fortunate to be listening to it tonight. Dr. Colin Ross on Radio Orbit. Good evening and welcome back to Radio Orbit. As always, I'm your host, Mike Hagan. And tonight my guest is Dr. Colin Ross. Dr. Ross is the founder and director of the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. He is a medical doctor of psychiatry, and he is also the author of a book called Bluebird. And uh, Bluebird is, in my opinion, the definitive work uh, documenting the U.S. government's direct involvement in the funding uh, of mind control er uh, experimentation and the creation of uh, the so-called Manchurian candidate, and oftentimes on, uh, on unwitting sub uh, subjects. So uh, Dr. Ross knows more about this subject than just about anybody I can think of, and uh, it is my pleasure to welcome him uh, to the program tonight. So, uh, Dr. Colin Ross, welcome to Radio Orbit. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks very much for being here. In fact, uh, that was my first order of business here is to, uh, to thank you. I know you're a very busy man, um, and I want to thank you for taking the time to share with me and my audience. Uh, but it's very important research what you've done, and I think uh, it's great that you're um, going to share it with us tonight. So thanks a lot. My pleasure. Great. Okay. Um, I'd like to start, I think, by doing a little bit of background um, on yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, after, after reading uh, much of your material, I'm fascinated as to what, what brought you to it and, uh, and sort of your, your pathway uh, toward the research that, that, that you eventually did and that you continue to do. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about where, where, you, where you came from. Well, it's kind of an accident and kind of a falling down the rabbit hole kind of thing. <laughs> I went to medical school in Canada from 77 to 81. I was Canadian by birth and moved to Dallas in 91. Okay. And then I did my psychiatry training in Winnipeg from 1981 to 1985. And then I was a academic psychiatrist based in a medical school. Never heard a word about military mind control, never read about it, wasn't aware of it, wasn't thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I moved down to Dallas in November 91. Within, and I'm started uh, consulting to and running a 
program for people with really traumatic, abusive childhoods. Okay. A fair number of whom had multiple personality disorder and other kind of related disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. And within a couple of months, and that's my area of specialty that I've written books about and so on. Right. After a couple of months of being in Dallas, instead of domestic abuse, incest, uh, some cult ritual abuse and so on type stories, I started to hear a different kind of story from the people I was working with. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was a kid, I was either taken to a hospital, taken to a military base, and there was all kinds of scientific equipment around, mm-hmm. people in lab coats, and they were spinning me around physically, uh, giving hallucinogens, memorization ex- uh, exercises, sensory deprivation, hooking EEG leads up to the head, electric shock, wearing weird goggles that distorted things, hmm. all kinds of different drugs involved. And uh, I started hearing all these stories. That's what got me into it. Okay, and and this was this is when you were in Dallas in uh, did you say 1991? Early 92. Okay, okay, early 92. And the stories you were hearing from uh, from some of these subjects, were they were they relating stories that were uh, typically older? In other words, would it, would it have placed them back a little bit further in history, or were they sort of uh, uh, current? They stories? were generally, uh, this was 92, and they were talking mostly about in between 20 and 40 years previously. Okay, so we're talking 40s, 50s, 60s, that sort of uh, time range. Okay. And then uh, one day with a sort of air of great paranoia and secrecy, well, one of the patients handed me this document and said, here, take this. I don't want it anymore. Do whatever you want with it. Really? And uh, it was a declassified document that had been declassified in the 70s. It was a memo from, uh, if I remember right, it was from J. Edgar Hoover to Richard Helms. So it was a U.S. document. CIA. Okay. Talking about MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I really heard much about this. Well, I tell you what, um, since uh, some of my listeners may or may not be uh, particularly familiar with MK Ultra, why don't you do a quick, uh, um, uh, a little quick uh, framework for that too? Okay. Well, let me just, just carry on with this because what I decided right away was, okay, I'm going to look into this. This I never heard any of this kind of stuff before. Sounds pretty unbelievable, but I'm going to look into it. Okay. And I kind of divided looking into it onto one track and how to do treatment onto a separate track. This wasn't really about how to do treatment. It was about how much of this is real and what's it all about and what's going on and what can I find out. And that's when I started looking into it. And uh, I filed a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests with the CIA, mm-hmm. started reading books mostly from the late 70s, <laughs> and then going to the medical school library, and I found out about this whole gigantic mountain of facts and documents. And MKUltra is part of that. It's a... CIA mind control program that was declassified in the mid 70s. It ran from about 1963 to 1972, roughly. So this is a documented uh, 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 program or operation uh, by the Central Intelligence Agency of the U.S. government. Yeah, and they, you can actually uh, now you can get the, all the documents on a CD-ROM. Unfortunately, when I got them, it was photocopies at uh, 10 cents a page, 15 <laughs> pages. Now it's like a 30 dollar CD-ROM. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a whole series of these mind control programs that have been declassified since the mid, uh, either 75, 6, 7 in there somewhere. Right. And then the first program, the CIA was created in 1947. Right, right, right. The OSS, Office of Strategic Services, was created immediately after uh, Pearl Harbor. 
it actually was called the Office of Coordination of Information, I think it was, for a little while. Then it was renamed Office of Strategic Services. And it was basically the central intelligence agency of the United States during the Second World War. Okay, so OSS eventually morphed into CIA. It was shut down in 1945. Okay. And then, uh, then there's all the sort of bureaucratic gear wheels turning. 1947, mostly with uh, OSS personnel, it was created as the CIA, or re reborn as the CIA. Right. And the, the first declassified CIA mind control program was 1950. Right. And that was called Bluebird, which is why my book is called Bluebird. Ah, because, because that was the first, uh, the first program. And it ran about 1950 to 54, 55, mm -hmm. and overlapped with Artichoke. And then Bluebird and Artichoke were rolled over into MKUltra, which uh, then ran, did I, I think I said the wrong years before, MKUltra ran uh, 54 to 63, okay. and then MKUltra was rolled over into MK Search, which ran from 1963 to 1972. So, and then, so regardless, there's, just a, there, there, there's obviously a long history here that we're talking about. series of programs. Right. You can uh, obtain these documents, anybody can, from the CIA. And uh, some of them are pretty sketchy, and some of them are pretty detailed. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole series of other projects, MK Naomi and MK Delta and Project Often. And there's quite a few different names. Right, little offshoots and subprograms and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah it's in it was that was pretty well all CIA run, but there was a lot of liaison with Army, uh, Navy, and cross-funding with the Air Force. Hmm. Amazing. Well, you answered one of my questions. I was going to ask you why um, why you named uh, your book uh, Bluebird. Um, I actually think I should have stayed with the previous title. A working title I had was The CIA Doctors. Wow. That's a, and the subtitle was Mind Control Experimentation by Psychiatrists. Hmm. That would have been a clearer title, actually, but well. Well, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I tell you what, regardless of what, the, uh, regardless of what the cover says on it, it is an incredible book, and... Um, I'll tell you, the first time I read it, uh, my initial reaction was, at first, disgust and rage, quite frankly. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I was reasonably familiar with some of the subject matter, but I had never really delved into it at, uh, at great detail. And um, that's one of the things that Bluebird gives uh, very clearly without, uh, without bias. It just basically... Um, goes through the actual documents that you were able to collect uh, through these freedom of, of information uh, searches that you Every had done. Every single thing in this book is an absolutely documented fact. Oh, yeah, it's my... No rumors, no conspiracy theories, no, you know, pet speculations. Right, and I think that's a good time to clarify that for everybody. The documentation for all of this is in the book, first of all, and it's also available, uh, like Dr. Ross mentioned earlier, um, uh, you can actually get a CD-ROM with all of these documents declassified now. And uh, for... Um, uh, just for uh, for the sake of getting it out there, my email address is orbitradio o r b i t r a d i o at aol.com. And if anybody has questions or comments about this, I will um, get you source information or try to answer your question or uh, do anything I can to further uh, your your knowledge about this uh, this subject. So, um, well, anyway, uh, Doctor, when I what I was saying is that when when after I got over the sort of rage of after I read your book, I started thinking about 
well, eventually just a, sort of a desire for justice and accountability and some sort of reconciliation. Exactly. Yeah, that's what my main my main thing is. Um, and so I'm a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and a lot of these mind control experiments were done by psychiatrists, some by psychologists, other physicians, neurosurgeons. So my big focus is on medical ethics, and there's been you would think that this was impossible, and if I didn't have all these facts, if we went back in time 15 years and somebody else said what I'm just going to say, right. I would have blown it off as unbelievable mm-hmm. and impossible. But actually what is factually true is there's been big-scale, systematic, widespread abuse of basic human rights by leading medical schools, psychiatrists, and physicians throughout the second half of the 20th century. Right, and throughout this country and probably throughout many other countries, too. Yeah, no doubt. But I have documents only about North America, but I'm sure right, it's right. universal. Right, right. And so um, you can you can take this in the direction of anti-government or anti-government conspiracy theory. And it's not that the government should be off the hook for all these things that have been done. But my personal thing is to, to really focus on the medical profession and the psychiatrist. Right. In other words, uh, the CIA may or may or may not, the intelligence community in general may or may not have had their particular agenda or their um, look. They're going their their charter is to gather information, and they're going to go about it in any way that they can. They've proven that quite clearly uh, throughout their history. Um, so, I uh, when I read your book, I certainly saw that in a little bit of a different light. Then I I, I understood that you had taken a different tack. And, and, and basically said, well, look, the CIA did what they did, but they could not have done it without the complicity of the medical community. Right. And, uh, I mean, Christ, some of the, pardon my language, but it just drives yeah. me crazy that this, uh, it's in their own journals. And, and, uh, well, and that was the other thing I found out when I started to you know, get the documents, and then I started to get the names of some of the investigators and so on, the contractors. Mm-hmm. And then I started to go to the medical school library because I knew. I was mostly looking at the 50s and 60s. I knew the authors to look for. Right. I knew some of the places they published. And I, there's no computerized way to search back then because the computerized indexing of medical journals doesn't go back that far. Mm-hmm. So you have to actually go to the library, physically take the 1950 book that's that journal, look through the 12 issues for 1950, put it back on the shelf, look at 1951. So it takes a little bit of time. Sure. Which was all just me doing it personally. With oh my gosh. But I was able to build up oh, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of papers published in mainstream medical journals that are in every medical school library in the Western world. Such as, give me an, an example of maybe one, one of these particular journals that may American have been. Journal of Psychiatry, Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, Comprehensive Psychiatry. Most of the, the main medical journals uh, the Lancet has uh, material in it. And w- the, what you do is you, you read, you key in on a certain investigator that you know is a CI contractor, and then he'll have an LSD experiment, and then when you look at the bottom of the first page, it usually says funding sources, and it'll say Office of Naval Research, Department of the Army, uh, Air Force Office of Scientific Research. Hmm. So there's no question about the funding of it. And I was just able to basically build up this huge grid of, this person was a top-secret cleared CIA contractor at this university at this time. 
on this specific MKUltra project, he also had Air Force money when he was at this university doing this experiment that he published in this journal. And the second and third authors were these two guys, and these two guys published with this other guy who was also a CA contractor who published with this guy. And it just turned into this huge web mm-hmm. of relationships and connections involving Yale, Harvard, UCLA, Tulane. Stanford, for sure. Stanford. So it's it's not just some mad scientist in a basement somewhere a long time ago. Right. It's uh, very organized. It's the main medical schools and the, a lot of the major figures in psychiatry. For instance, uh, when I was even in medical school, but in psychiatry, I heard about Carl Rogers, mm-hmm. who was a psychologist who's identified with this kind of therapy called client-centered therapy. And the kind of stereotype of that is with the client's in there for a therapy session and says, I'm really mad at my mom. And the therapist says, uh, I hear you saying that you're really mad at your mom. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of touchy-feely, and you're supposed to, number one, value the client, and it's all centered on the best interests of the client. It's also called humanistic therapy. Right. So it's like Mr. Nice Guy therapy. Well, lo and behold, uh, Carl Rogers was cleared at top secret. He was a CIA contractor himself, ran experiments for the CIA on subjects, which he published in psychology journals, and he was on the board of a CIA front organization that funneled money from the CIA uh, inside the MKUltra program to the front organization, which then gave grants to academics who didn't realize it was CIA money. Incredible. And it, so a lot of these major figures were directly involved. You know, and that's the, uh, when I said I was disgusted earlier, my, my, my disgust didn't only come from the fact that they were, that these things were actually carried out, you know, but it was just as much for the way in which they were carried out, um, like you're talking about now, covertly, oftentimes without informed consent of the uh, of the subject or victim or whatever you want to call them. Well, apologists uh, will always say, oh, well, that was a long time ago. We didn't have the same ethical standards now. Huh. We have different kinds of committees now. Right, right, They're right. completely bogus. It is, it is. These experiments violated everything going all the way back to the Hippocratic Oath. Sure. The Nuremberg Code, Helsinki Codes, Every ethical code that's been uh, in the last 2,000 plus years, specifically, these were uh, crimes against humanity that would have got a lot of press if they were done by Nazi doctors during the Second World War. Well, you know, you you, uh, you read my mind there, Dr. Ross. Um, I was just going to say that you, uh, if if we um, if we have a moment, maybe we could talk about paperclip a little bit sure. and about um, uh, again the. The documented evidence that we have of, of who a lot of these guys were um, that came in initially and, and where they came from and what their background was and that sort of thing. When I started to get into this, I realized that I had to get a kind of broad general background because a lot of these facts, I'll, I'll describe some of the experiments in a little while, but a lot of the facts are so fantastic and unbelievable. If you don't have a context to put them in, you're just kind of overwhelmed by the boggle factor and you can't compute that it could all be real. Oh man, it's it's taken me years to uh, uh, to reconcile some of the things that I've learned, and it, and 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 that's a limited number of things. But it really does take a while to uh, to to uh, <laughs> to be able to accept it, I guess. Because if you if if I just made a statement out of the blue, did you know that uh, Nazi psychiatrists who did experiments in the death camps were brought over here secretly and have been running experiments on psychiatric patients? the last 50 years, <laughs> you'd think I was nuts, right? Right. But I don't tonight, though. No, you don't tonight. <laughs> uh, 
and that's because you you know about Project Paperclip. Yeah. And there's a number of books on this. Again, it's all documented, all declassified. So the problem was at the end of the Second World War, really in the last year, especially the last six months of the war, and then the first six months, year after the end of the war, there was a lot of German scientists who had expertise in everything under the sun, basically, mm-hmm. who were now up for grabs. And so the British, the French, the Russians, and the Americans were all scrambling to try and recruit these people. Okay. And the problem was that uh, many of them were uh, Nazi war criminals. And so they couldn't be brought into the United States because the State Department wouldn't issue them a visa. So what happened is the CIA and the military together created a series of projects, of which the best known is Project Paperclip. And that was basically to uh, find, identify, recruit these guys, and then bring them into the country, rooting them around the State Department visa requirements. And this included uh, Werner von Braun, mm-hmm. whose uh, V-2 rocket factory uh, was basically run by labor from Camp Dora. When U.S. troops uh, liberated Camp Dora, they found 6,000 corpses on the ground. So... Uh, mm-hmm. Werner von Braun was directly involved in working uh, mostly Polish, I think it was, labor camp prisoners to death in his V-2 rocket factory, and he had direct on-site knowledge of that, which makes him a Nazi war criminal, so therefore he couldn't come into the United States. Uh, There was uh, rocket people. Most of the people who set up the initial American rocket program uh, were everything, ball bearings, film, lubricants, propulsion, and also physicians, a man named Albertus Strughold, and people on his administrative level in Nazi Germany, people who reported to him, and people that people that he reported to, were all uh, interrogated, investigated, tried, and found guilty of war crimes and sentenced to prison. He was never interviewed. Instead, he was brought to the United States through Project Paperclip, um, was set up in Texas. There's a a library named after him at one of the Air Force bases in San Antonio, and I think it was was around 1975-76. The the Texas legislature named a day after him, and now Bertus Strughold Day, to honor him. And that's because he's regarded as the father of aviation medicine in the United States. Stunning. And um... And so if if you just sort of look at the facts, all of these different scientists from all areas of expertise, including physicians, what are the odds that no psychiatrists were brought over? Mm-hmm. Basically zero. Right. The right. problem is the psychiatrists are left out of the documented facts. Why is that? Because of the MK experiments, you think? I think that uh, what they were doing was just too wild and too crazy and too mm-hmm. frightening mm-hmm. and too intolerable. Uh, the publicity on it couldn't be tolerated. Right. With the rocket program, I mean, you can say, okay, well, the war was over. Uh, now we had the Cold War, we had the space race. We needed these guys, right. so we had to bring them in. I mean, you can right. mount an argument. Right, right, right. But the the stuff that the psychiatrists were doing was... Uh, Unconscionable. Insane experiments on children. I know. Terminal cancer patients, uh, prisoners who were also drug addicts, homeless people uh, that violated all basic medical ethics, no proper consent, no... Um, no independent counsel of any kind, no real follow-up, no mm-hmm. compensation. And, uh, it's not tolerable to the public. And, and in fact, um, I think a lot of the, uh, 
the reason, like you say, that the that that the allied countries were trying to get a hold of some of these guys was supposedly their research was above and beyond what other people had accomplished at that point. But much of that, at least on the medical side, was because they were doing experiments that were so uh, outside of uh, what we would consider reasonable to do to human subjects. What type of experiment would include um, putting somebody in a, this would be um, all death camp prisoners basically, mm -hmm. putting somebody in a specially constructed uh, chamber and instantaneously dropping the pressure in the chamber to the equivalent of 67,000 foot altitude, which then causes people to claw at their faces uh, and basically scream and go through the worst agony possible and then die. Mm -hmm. And then one thing they did was they took these guys, as soon as they were dead, they took them out of the chamber dumped them underwater so their heads were under hot water, opened up their scalps, sawed through their skulls, and the reason they wanted them underwater was to see whether any air bubbles bubbled out of their arteries. Unreal. So, I mean, it's just absolute full tilt medical atrocities. And these are the equivalent things were done by psychiatrists who were then brought over mm -hmm. uh, in order to run interrogation, mind control, brainwashing programs. Wow, absolutely stunning. And uh, just to reiterate uh, to those listening, this is all documented, and uh, there's absolutely no question that this stuff happened. Um, it's just uh, something that's not not uh, not available through most of your information sources. So. You have to, but an amazing amount of it is just sitting right there waiting to be organized. Right. It's not a matter of, I didn't have any deep throat character at all. Right. All just, documents that any citizen can go and obtain. Boy, and that's, I don't know what that says to me. It's actually quite frightening, I guess, that because you, you are, quite frankly, the, the only, uh, the only uh, person that I know of, at least, that has, um, uh, that has even begun to delve into this particular angle of it. And I think it's probably the most important one that there is. Well, I'm definitely the only psychiatrist, literally yeah, yeah. the only psychiatrist in the world writing or speaking publicly on this massive violation of human rights by psychiatrists for the last 50-plus years. And the, it's not that there's really a, a conspiracy. I mean, I'm sure there's some people conspiring here and there. Sure. But the basic way it operates, as far as I can tell, is kind of this old boys network huh. where there's just these... Don't rock the boat, you know, a gentleman in the club doesn't speak about that because it could be a little uncomfortable for one of the other gentlemen and right. nobody wants to talk about it too much because it might affect their career or their colleagues might frown on them or somebody might try to discredit them. And a lot of it comes down to just maintaining your grants, trying to keep your academic promotions, maintaining your status in society as a professional. Right. And we see, and we it's, nothing, it's not this sort of elaborate conspiracy. It's just mm -hmm. the kind of, it's like the mundane aspect of evil, right, the reality yeah. of evil kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, and because, because uh, you see it in many other different areas of human endeavor too, similar things, you know. Uh, so, wow, incredible. Well, we we did. Um, you touched a little bit about on on the on the history of the actual experimentation. I think um, let's take a little break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the actual historical uh, uh, operations. Maybe we can talk a little bit about Tuskegee, sure. and I'd like to talk a little bit about HREX and the human radiation stuff, if you don't mind, when sure. we come back. Um, so we'll do that, and um, uh, we'll be back. Uh, we'll take a music break here, and I'll be back with my guest, Dr. Colin Ross. 
Uh, very pleased to have him with us tonight on Radio Orbit. And um, uh, Dr. Ross, how can uh, people get in touch with you or how can they find out what uh, what you're doing? you have a website address or some phone numbers or something we can get out? All my books, including Bluebird, are on Amazon.com. Okay. And my webpage is www.rossinst.com, which is short for Ross Institute. And um, my contact email and everything is on the website. Okay, great. So that's uh, www.rossinst.com. That's R-O-S-S-I-N-S-T.com. Okay, or great. You can just search under Colin Ross and the Ross Institute comes up. Okay, great. Uh, I'll be back with my guest, Colin Ross, uh, Dr. Colin Ross, uh, in just a moment. Auch hier in diesem 
on Radio Orbit. That song is called Mas Aladinha. And we'll get right back to my interview with Dr. Colin Ross on Radio Orbit, KOPN. All right, uh, we're back with my guest, Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. Uh, Dr. Ross and I have been talking about the history of mind control experimentation in the United States. And uh, we're going to get right back to Dr. Ross here. So, um, uh, Dr. Ross, let's talk a little bit, uh, like we talked about at the break, about Tuskegee and uh, uh, some of the other earlier experiments, just so we can give some people an idea of, uh, of how deeply uh, this goes back into history. Okay. And I'll comment on the old conspiracy of silence a bit there, too. Now, I was in medical school from 1977 to 1981. Okay. And the Tuskegee syphilis study ran from 1942 to 1972. So it stopped five years before I started medical school, and I never heard about it till the 1990s. Wow. So what was the Tuskegee syphilis study, and what has it got to do with mind control? It directly doesn't have anything to do with mind control. What it's got to do with is the broad picture of medical ethics and medical experiments, and the absolutely outrageous stuff that went on that you would think was impossible, but was actually published in medical journals. So the Tuskegee syphilis study was actually a repeat of an experiment that was done in Norway back around 1919 or so. And what they did was, and now you, you'll, you won't have much trouble figuring out why they chose the subjects they chose. They didn't choose daughters of corporate CEOs. They didn't choose wives of congressmen and senators. They chose uh, 400 black, rural, illiterate, poor guys in the South all of whom had active syphilis, and then there was 400 controls in Alabama who didn't have syphilis. And what they did is they prevented the 400 guys with syphilis from having treatment all the way up till 1972. And they, uh, there was a, a nurse whose name was Eunice Rivers, I think it was, if I remember her name right. Mm-hmm. She actually got an award for being the study nurse from the U.S. Public Health Service. The Tuskegee Syphilis Study was approved by and known to and signed off on by American Heart Association, uh, Surgeon General, uh, and many different medical societies and organizations. And at 25-year point of the study, the Surgeon General 
signed an individual certificate for each surviving subject in the study, and they were given $25, $1 for each year of participation in the study. $1 for each year. Right. For participation, which many times they didn't even know they were participating. They thought the, the book about this is called Bad Blood. Mm -hmm. They thought that they had bad blood. They had no idea that it was an infectious disease. Right, that's what they were told. You have bad blood. And right. so, now that in itself is just an incredible, unbelievable violation of medical ethics because these people could have been treated with early, somewhat effective treatments in the 40s, but when by the time penicillin came on, these people could have been treated and cured. Right. So what was the outcome of the study? Well, of course, these people died earlier, had more diseases, and got sicker than the guys without syphilis. And uh, the reason I know that's what happened is, again, not because I talked to some deep throat character, because I went to the medical school library and got the paper from the journal, which has got, I don't remember the exact title, but it's something like Untreated Syphilis in the Male Negro, a 20-Year Follow-Up. Amazing. Published in a mainstream medical journal. So. Mm -hmm. All the doctors who read that journal, the editors, it was a generally publicly known fact that this was going on. The medical profession just looked the other way. And so it, it's outrageous that these guys, as adult males, had untreated syphilis. But I actually read the whole book before it occurred to me, wait a minute. This study went on for 30 years. There's 400 guys. How many different women did they have intercourse with during right. 30 years? My gosh. How many women did they impregnate? And how many, how children? many children were born with congenital syphilis? And what was the purpose of the experiment? What did we find out from this experiment? We found out that if you have syphilis and you don't treat it, you get sicker and you die earlier. Amazing. Which is, we already knew that. Right. There's no real medical purpose for it, and it obviously violates every possible medical ethic going back for thousands of years. Yeah, it, it, it is uh, as many times, as, as thoroughly as I know it now, it's still uh, talking to you tonight. Uh, it's just a mind-bender for me all over again. It is. And, uh, and then, then the question comes, well, why did it stop in 1972? It's because one guy who was working at a, a VD clinic in San Francisco thought to himself, he started hearing stories about this Tuskegee syphilis study. Mm-hmm. And he thought to himself, wait a minute here. He contacted the Center for Disease Control, which had taken over and was running the study at this time. Ongoing, right. They brought him down there. They met with him. They said, oh, it's all okay. We're doctors. It's medical study. <laughs> he went back and basically he called a journalist friend who blew the thing in the uh, Washington Post. There was a big article. And all of a sudden, all the medical people like were... Outraged, backpedaled, right. distanced right. themselves from it, and it was shut down. Right. I've read the actual article, and you're exactly right. All of a sudden, it was an outrage in the community. But where were they when it was actually going on? It's unreal. And so that's uh, really the same story as the radiation experiments, mm -hmm. the radiation and uh, biological and chemical weapons ex experiments. Clinton set up a, a commission of inquiry, basically, that produced a report I forget the exact year, probably around 96, 97, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. It's a 900-page document that I have. And it was uh, going back to the Second World War. You know those famous pictures of all the soldiers watching the nuclear bomb go off in the South Pacific? Right. It goes all the way back to that and follows forward. And uh, again, I have uh, articles from medical journals where they're describing uh, 
this, I think it was in Connecticut. It was in the Northeast somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a home for mentally retarded kids, kind of a care facility for mentally retarded kids. And they're giving these kids uh, viruses, bacteria, and radiation experimentally. They're putting radioactive substances in their cereal and telling the parents that it's a dietary supplement. So they're directly lying to the parents. And it's all just for the purpose of finding out what happens when a bunch of radiation gets in your body. How fast does it come out in your urine? What does it do to you? How long does it stay in the bones? Which is unethical by itself. Then lying to the parents is obviously unethical. But it all gets published in a journal. That's crazy. And so I've got articles where they're describing uh, injecting people with viruses, mentally mm-hmm. retarded kids, just to see what happens. Right. And, again, it just goes on without comment. And at the bottom of the article, it'll say, uh, funded by U.S. Department of the Army. So you know that the Army is not funding this because they're trying to help patients or advance medicine. Right. It's about biological warfare right, and wars. how to protect troops against biological warfare from the other side. Right, right, which we, which in essence is an extension of much of what the Germans were doing uh, who ended up uh, here after, uh, uh, through paperclip. Right. Was, uh, like you say, offensive weapons and then defenses against those same weapons. And the, the, the radiation, the people who are involved in, like the Atomic Energy Commission obviously is involved in the radiation. Mm-hmm. But you find that the Atomic Energy Commission is also cross-linked to the U.S. Public Health Service because as soon as you've got radiation, you've got a health issue. Sure. Then the U.S. Public Health Service is next-door neighbor of the Center for Disease Control. So then the Center of Disease Control, U.S. Public Health Service, those are all arms of the government. Well, so is the military. So is the CIA. Right. And you find a lot of cross-linking in terms of the actual people running the experiments. Mm-hmm bodies funding the experiments, the journals publishing experiments. So the mind control experimentation is all interwoven with the radiation, chemical, biological weapons. An example is a guy named William Sweet, who's a neurosurgeon at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's quoted uh, in testimony of the, whatever the name of the committee was, the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation, I think it was called, right. the Clinton setup. He's quoted as saying, well, yes, we did do radiation experiments on Harvard using plutonium, and we injected plutonium into people, but they all gave informed consent. Well, the little problem is uh, HP4, which is the code name for one of the subjects, right. means human product number four, because he was the fourth subject in the experiment. HP4, that's what it was called? Yeah, I'm pretty sure HP4. Okay. Human product number, right. number four. Hmm. Yeah. That's not exactly friendly terminology. So he comes into the emergency department at one of the Harvard hospitals. He's injected with plutonium. uh, This is one of the guys who supposedly gave informed consent. Right. But he came in unconscious in a coma as a John Doe. He was never identified. He was injected with plutonium, and he died without coming out of the coma and without being identified. Right. And somehow throughout that... informed consent. Yeah, somehow he gave uh, informed consent throughout that whole thing. So it's just lying. Right. Well, that that, that brings a question to mind. I just want to... Let me fill in one more little bit. Okay, go ahead. Because it's the cross-link to mind control. All right, great. So this same guy, William Sweet, was also in the Harvard brain electrode implant team. So there was brain electrode implant experiments 
done uh, for sure at Tulane, Yale, and Harvard. And these guys, again, published all this in medical journals. As early as when? Uh, back into the early 50s. Okay, so we're talking again as early as the 50s. And that's really pretty early in the history of modern neurosurgery. Right, right. Wilder Penfield, who's really the most famous neurosurgeon, was active in the 30s and 40s. So, so the neurosurgical techniques hadn't been around that long. Right, it's almost like as soon as they started doing neurosurgery, they immediately decided to start messing with it too and start trying these implants and things. So this is funded by CIA, Army, Office of Naval Research. Again, it says it right on the papers that the, the neurosurgeons published in the the main medical journals that I have copies of. And a typical experiment is um, this guy, Jose Delgado at Yale, who supplied equipment to the Harvard team. He implanted a brain electrode in a, a boy who was 11 years old. And he was the first guy who developed a remote transmitter so he could activate the electrode without having the wire directly connected to the person's skull. Right. And he shows pictures in his book and in his medical papers of um, a 16-year-old girl where you push one button and she's sitting there with this blank grin on her face. Push another button, she's strumming the guitar. Push another button, she's pounding on the wall furiously. Oh All because the different buttons have activated different electrodes that are in her brain. Right. And he describes an 11-year-old boy where he would push a certain button and the boy would start saying he thought maybe he was really a girl and he'd like to marry... Jose Delgado. And they could just turn this behavior on and off depending on what button they pushed. And almost in a sort of joking manner almost. I mean, that, that, yeah, that, that particular joking. example to me shows that they were just messing. I mean, hey, you know, let's make the little boy say he wants to marry me. Right. I mean, at Tulane, Robert Heath was the guy at Tulane. He put um, electrodes in um, part of the brain that's called loosely called a pleasure center. Mm -hmm. And he could stimulate women to orgasm by pushing the button on his machine, and he would watch them writhing. He'd watch them through a one-way mirror, and they'd be writhing and having an orgasm, and then he would describe that in his medical papers. Hmm. I imagine that's probably the only way he was able to do that. <laughs> yeah. And then, so one, one thing he did was, uh, again, published in a medical journal, he had uh, a guy that he wanted to cure of a mental disease, and the mental disease was homosexuality. So the American Psychiatric Association def defined homosexuality as a mental disease, mm -hmm. and so therefore psychiatrists were going to cure it. Right. And usually they would try with psychotherapy or some sort of conditioning or something. What he did is he implanted the electrode in this guy's brain, a 19-year-old gay guy, and uh, stimulated his pleasure center just up to near orgasm mm -hmm. while he was watching heterosexual pornography over and over and over and over to try and recondition him. Right. And then he decided he would let the guy... Uh, have control of his own transmitter box and have it like a, almost like a beeper on his belt. Right, so he could hit it whenever he wanted. He, they had to take it away from him because he pushed the button 1,500 times in three hours. So then after all the conditioning and training, the final test was, this is, remember, this is at a medical school with taxpayer money under the guise of scientific research. Right. He hired a prostitute, brought her in, had the guy have sex with the prostitute while he's wired up to the EEG because mm. they get EEG output. Right. He watches the EEG output while they're having sex. Then afterwards, he debriefs the prostitute and the guy. He says, yeah, it was great. The prostitute said, yeah, he seemed to have normal arousal. The prostitute goes away. And then the follow-up is uh, 
nine months where he only had one or two relapses. That is back into gay behavior. Mm-hmm. And then we don't know what happened to him after that. Huh. And this was a major medical school. And this guy was funded by all branches of the military and the CIA. was a very well-respected guy, published in all the major journals. Incredible. I mean, it leaves me speechless every time uh, I hear it. It's just incredible. So, incredible. Well, okay, so we have this long history. Uh, we have this long history that goes back to the 30s through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, how, how, how far, uh, when did they stop? Did they stop? Do we know if they stopped? Uh, well, uh, it'd be ongoing right to this very moment, in my opinion. Yeah, I would have to agree that that, that most likely that's probably the case. Here's why I think this. If you go back to the MK Ultra documents, uh, which again was 1954 to 1963, right. there was 149 different sub-projects under MK Ultra. Mm. About kind of half, half two-thirds of them were to universities. A third of them were to chemical companies and uh, private manufacturers, right. just to manufacture chemicals, drugs. Implants, all these sort of things. Yeah, right. so that was just the sort of technical side of it. Mm-hmm. But it, the big chunk of it was contracted out to the universities. And so about a third of the projects total were kind of no big deal, just a, academic research on this, that, or the other. Right. And a lot of those guys didn't know that they were getting CIA money because it was funneled through a front organization. Exactly, a little cutout. And the purpose of that was uh, they just kind of threw money uh, all over the place to see if anything came to light. And also, they wanted to form relationships with people in case they wanted to actually give them clearance and recruit them in the future. Mm-hmm. And then about a third of the subjects, the people like Martin Orn and Jolly West and other psychiatrists, had top-secret clearance, uh, had signed security oaths and so on, knew it was CIA money, were direct contractors. And they did experiments on hypnosis, sensor deprivation, uh, creating dissociated states, messing around with memories, erasing memories, implanting memories, and also creating the Manchurian candidate. Okay. Not, not in fiction, but in reality. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to, uh, to take another break. We'll take a break here with my guest, Dr. Colin Ross. Uh, you can reach Dr. Ross and find out more information about his organization at www.rossinst. I should spell that, www.rossinst. INST.com, and uh, we'll be back with Dr. Ross in just a few minutes, and we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the actual mind control side of this whole thing. Uh, so far, we've been talking pretty much uh, from a historical perspective uh, medically. Now we're going to talk about what they actually tried to do to the brain and to the mind. Um, so we'll be back with Dr. Ross in just a moment. Thanks for listening. This is Radio Orbit on KOPN. That's right. This is Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. I'm talking to you live. It's 4 a.m. on KOPN 89.5 FM. All right. Uh, you're listening to an interview with Colin Ross from the Ross Institute of Psychological Trauma. Uh, Dr. Ross and I spoke a couple of years ago, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, and a couple of years ago, too. In any case... Uh, We'll get back to that in a minute. Let's listen to a little bit, mu- a little bit of music here for a second, and we'll get right back to that interview. This is uh, from the soundtrack to the movie The Lost Boys, Gerard McMahon. The song is called Cry Little Sister. 
Okay, we're back with Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute. And um, uh, Dr. Ross, we still have you on the line here? I'm here, yeah. All right, great. Thanks for sticking around with us uh, tonight to uh, deliver this information. It's really important that people understand some of these things. So, Thanks for the forum. Well, actually, since we're kind of in the middle here, I would, I'd like every time I talk on this subject, I'd like to make uh, one point, which is about my kind of overall political position on this. Okay. Um, which is actually, I think, a slightly disappointing political position to some people. <laughs> but my point is that I'm not in any way against the military, against the CIA, against the government. And my personal position is, if this is speaking as somebody who grew up as Canadian now has U.S. and Canadian dual citizenship. Okay. If it wasn't for the U.S. military and the CIA, we would have lost the Cold War. If we lost the Cold War, the Soviet Union would have taken over North America, and I would have died in Gulag a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Along with there's, me and many others. So there's no question that I personally owe a large debt to the U.S. military and the CIA. And we have to have an intelligence community and the intelligence community has got to do stuff in secret, and some of the stuff it's got to do is a little unsavory, but that's the way it is. Right. That's my political position. Um, that doesn't mean they can just get away with anything and everything without any oversight or any, ever any consequences, but I bring it back to the doctors. Because right. what I see is not really, I'm not against the national security oath. I think the problem is there's a big conflict between the national security oath the Hippocratic Oath. Maybe you could explain uh, what, what both of those oaths sort of say in general and, and, and how they do conflict. Well, basically, when you take a security oath at, at any level of military intelligence, you agree that you are not going to talk about classified stuff. And if you do, you're subject to prosecution. Okay. Uh, and that's a legally binding oath that you take. And then obviously, the military can't function without that. So the National Security Oath is designed to protect freedom and democracy. We've got to have it, and it's a good thing. But if you're a psychiatrist or if you're a psychologist, you agree to follow, in the case of the psychiatrist, medical ethics, going back to Hippocrates. And that includes things like first do no harm, put the patient first, for real informed consent, not pretend informed consent, Mm Uh, proper experimental procedures, not doing wild, crazy treatments, not harming people just for your own interest or for the interest of the military or the state. That's medical ethics. And what happens when these people go into mind control contracting is all of a sudden the medical ethics go out the window. Yeah, completely out the window. And what I, I think where the control should be is the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, need to get real about all this instead of just pretending it never happened. Mm-hmm. Have some committees, have some public hearings, set up some tight rules that have teeth and guidelines, and it needs to be a formal decreed violation of medical ethics. It needs to be malpractice, and you need to be at risk of having your license revoked and having a large civil suit. If you take money from any intelligence agency, the military, or any covert source... Right, a private corporation, whatever. Private corporation, any front organization, it doesn't matter, and you don't disclose to the research subject who's funding the research and what its purpose is. Okay. And I think the problem that's happened historically is a lot of this was, in the MK Ultra era, was uh, contracted into the academia. And I... Th- 
my sort of, I don't really know this, I kind of a little bit know it, but what I speculate is it's really been taken out of academia since the mid-70s, and it's really now funded into private corporations. Mm -hmm. So the mind control experimentation, non-lethal weapons development, general defense contracting, it's mostly private sector now. Right. There's still psychiatrists in there and psychologists in there and doctors because you can't do experiments on military ways of controlling people's minds and behavior without having psychiatrists and doctors involved. Right. And those people are violating basic medical ethics. And that's a problem. Mm. And it, it's a big public problem. And it's a disgrace to medicine and it's a disgrace to a so-called you know, advanced modern country. Gosh, you're not kidding. You know, it's just, it's the, the whole elephant in the living room sort of idea, you know? Yeah, and it's, it is elephant in the living room because, like I said, it's just sitting there on the shelves at the medical library. Right. It's not secret. Right. And uh, uh -huh. many, many, many people have been, who are still alive, who are still practicing, have been directly involved personally. Their teachers have been involved. And everybody just looks the other way. Well, I'll tell you something on a personal note. Um, I, there, there, are, there are a couple of things. Uh, uh, first of all, I have a friend, uh, a, a longtime friend, uh, who I went to uh, high school with, and I'm still very close friends with uh, today, and we've been knowing each other for 25 years. He's a professor at Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, he teaches. Uh, he's a doctor at Harvard, and uh, he went to Harvard, uh, graduated. You know, was very uh, did, did very well there, and he, and and now he is continuing continuing his career there as a teacher. And um, uh, I I certainly respect him as such. Uh, but he's going to get a copy of this uh, of this interview. I can tell you that much, and um, uh, because this is very serious stuff, and 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 it has to be reconciled. And 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 I'm actually a lot of it's been done at Harvard within the last 50 years. Right, and that's the main reason why I'd like to why I want to make sure that he's aware of that, if nothing else. You know what I mean? I don't I don't particularly expect him to take action or whatever, but I just want to make sure he knows. And and it's crazy that so many people in the medical community have no idea about most of this stuff. But it, it, that's, you can kind of let, like, the average doctor or average psychiatrist off the hook for not knowing about it. Mm -hmm. But not really, because I didn't know about it. It's right. not hard to find out about. Right. I'm not, I'm not a physician. I found out about it. it I mean, through, through uh, certainly we all, we all have our ways. You know, we all kind of stumble across things, and they, if, if we follow them, they sort of lead us on our path. But, right. but this is one that um, uh, I, have, I have a close friend who was born congenitally uh, con with a congenital defect uh, because his mother was subjected to radiation experiments in Utah in the late 1940s. You mentioned that when we were talking before at Dugway Proving Ground. Yeah, Dugway. And, um, Dugway Proving Ground was a site of a lot of radiation, uh, also LSD and uh, biological weapons experiments. Yeah, and uh, as soon as I found out about that, I started just doing a little bit of research on my own to find out what had happened to him. And uh, sure enough, it led me down the road, and uh, now here I am talking to you. So, um, well, and, that, and that's just one little section of what went right, on. Right. I mean, right. if you look at uh, that's radiation, but let's just look at drugs and mind control experimentation. Let's do that. Let's talk about LSD a little bit maybe and then let's go get into the serious mind control stuff and what they were really doing and how they did it and, uh, and how effective it was and all that stuff. Well, the LSD story is one of the most amazing stories, which, again, I didn't know anything about it when I got into it. I knew about LSD. You know, you're right. It is an incredible story, and I, and I, I look forward to hearing you tell it. It's so great. I'm in, I'm in my psychiatry training from 1981 to 1985. 
So the, the main diagnostic manual was the DSM-3, which came out in 1980. Okay. It gets updated every once in a while. You're up in Canada at this time? Or yeah. Here? Okay. And Canada really uses the DSM. All right. So that's basically the rule book for how you make psychiatric diagnoses. And in the, then there's a new edition in 87, 94, and 2000. Okay. So the current one is DSM-4. All right. Which just means the fourth edition of this manual. And according to the rules of the American Psychiatric Association, if you're on LSD, you have a mental disorder. <laughs> you're mentally ill while you're on the trip. That's It's officially defined that way. Okay. And... I mean, if you take a whole lot of it, you have a substance abuse problem. And LSD intoxication is a psychotic, deranged mental state, basically. Uh, okay, well, so that's what I was taught. And all nobody debated this. You didn't see professors stand up and say, yeah, but I took a lot of trips when I was a teenager, and I'm okay. Right, right. It was this unanimous, and of course, lots of the psychiatrists who were in their 50s and 60s now experimented with acid in the 60s. Sure. Personally. Sure. But uh, everybody, oh, don't talk about that. And, and, in, and in fact, some incredible research came out of that, that and, and a lot of that got, got swept under the rug, too. Exactly. So then, while I'm reading all of this, I end up finding out the actual history of LSD, which, again, is completely public domain information. There's books on it. Mm -hmm. It's at the medical school library. It's not, it's not secret. And the real history is that it was really... It, discovered by accident by this guy, Albert Hoffman, who was a chemist at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals in Switzerland in 1943. And he was doing research on uh, ergo alkaloids, which are a chemical that grows in a specific type of fungus that grows on rye wheat. Okay. And so he just happens to be in that area and trying to see what are the properties of these things. He synthesizes some LSD, which is kind of a slightly modified version of this fungus. And he ingests some by accident and goes on the world's first LSD trip. <laughs> and so then we fast forward to the 1960s when all of a sudden LSD is spilling out into the popular culture, right? Right. The question is, well, what happened in between? Okay. And so what happened in between was uh, Sandoz started to manufacture LSD and was the first supplier and manufacturer of LSD in the world. And in the Bluebird documents from the early 50s, there's an internal CIA memo that says uh, that this one CIA guy is talking to the other CIA guy saying he's concerned that the Soviets are trying to buy up the entire world's supply of LSD hmm. because they're using it for interrogation and brainwashing experiments. Okay, so, 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 so the parallel, at least there's some parallel research uh, well, going on in Soviet the Soviet Union. Union. Okay. And so then the problem is, of course, if the Soviet Union buys all of the LSD, we won't have any for ourselves. <laughs> so then what the discussion is, we need a secure domestic supply, and who are the people who are experts on ergoalkaloids, and who can we contract with? And lo and behold, in 1953, the first major manufacturer and distributor of LSD in the United States comes on the scene. And who is that? Well, who would it be? Some Colombians? Beatniks? Mafia? Mm. No, it's Eli Lilly Company. You bet, Eli Lilly. What? Uh, MKUltra subproject in 1953 for $400,000 was a CIA contract, top secret clearance contract with Eli Lilly to become the first major manufacturer and distributor of LSD in North America. And so they supplied then lots of LSD to the CIA and the military, which then was used in experiments. And some of the early people who first took LSD 
as subjects in military and CIA LSD experiments included Ken Kesey, Allen Ginsberg, Timothy Leary. This is how LSD actually got into our culture. Right. The subjects were recruited for mind control experimentation run by the CIA and the military. Right. And then these books that I then read and, and articles and so on, I find that uh, Joel Elkies, who was chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, described in a radio interview, a TV interview, first taking LSD himself in 1947. Wow. So the... the head of the Department of Psychiatry at one of the major medical schools was able to get some LSD and take it himself in 1947. Right. 20 years before the average hippie could take it. Right. And so the first people who took LSD in North America were actually um, CIA personnel and CIA contractor psychiatrists who used it recreationally themselves, gave it to their friends, colleagues, and sometimes spouses, and then started using it for therapy. So then there's a literature by the late 50s, early 60s, giving LSD to try and treat alcoholism, LSD to treat homosexuality, LSD to treat various neuroses. And when the, um, the federal the government made LSD an illegal drug in 67 or so, there was a lot of protest from these LSD doctors that this was unscientific, it's against medicine, that LSD is a wonderful agent. Right. And so they'd been using it recreationally, giving it therapeutically to people, and also running mind control experimentation, brainwashing experiments. Now, as a, as a therapeutic, um, was it effective? or? Well, the studies were badly designed without proper controls and placebos and so on, most of them. Mm -hmm. But these guys were very enthusiastic about it and thought it was wonderful. Right. So in 1967... The, the people in psychiatry who knew the most about LSD were taking it themselves, using it as a therapeutic agent, and thought it was horrible anti-scientific disaster that it was made illegal. Hmm. Thirteen years later, in 1980, it was a mental disorder. Incredible. The, that's not science. That's a whole bunch of crazy politics. Right. Right. Yeah, I've, I've heard uh, stories from a friend of mine who was in Southern California at the time in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, and he tells stories about, about these uh, cars with government license plates on them with, uh, with, with guys throwing sheets of paper out the windows of the cars that, were, that, that each had you know, hundreds of hits of acid on them. And they would just throw them out the windows and, 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 and let you know, the kids or whoever was on the street just pick it up and do it. In fact, uh, he says it was crazy. He said, that, that he said they changed a whole generation and didn't even know it. So the whole history of, and the same is true for mescaline and psilocybin, mm -hmm. that came in through drug company suppliers right. and CIA military experimentation. That's right. how it got into right. our culture. Were you this familiar? is all, again, completely documented in medical journals. Right. Were you familiar with, uh, with Terrence McKenna by chance? Yeah, he was a he was a researcher into uh, psilocybin. He's no longer with us. But in any case, uh, go on. So, so then that's that's one way that this whole sort of hidden but right out in public history has affected our culture as a whole. I mean, the whole '60s and turn on, tune in, drop out, and better living with chemistry. Right. That came from the CIA, the military, the government, the taxpayer, the major medical schools, chairman of departments of psychiatry. 
Incredible. That's who started all of that and got that ball rolling. Absolutely incredible. And then all of a sudden, within literally a decade and a half, it becomes a bunch of people with psychiatric disorders, substance abuse problems. All right, let's let, let's talk about how that happened and and uh, and, and what happened. Uh, what, what was the next uh, sort of step in this in this pattern? Well, uh, one thing that's interesting but kind of macabre is that the LSD works on the brain neurotransmitter serotonin. Correct. So uh, Eli Lilly first developed its expertise in serotonin pharmacology through studying LSD. That's how they got into the serotonin system, started finding out how it works, what the receptors are, and so on. Right. What's their main serotonin drug now? Prozac. Prozac, exactly right. So the motto of better living through chemistry is actually the motto of the American Psychiatric Association these days. <laughs> yeah, it's just in, it's just uh, dressed up in some different clothes a little bit. So. Uh, so, but so what becomes a therapeutic agent that's prescribed by the doctor is a next door neighbor of what was 30 years ago the therapeutic agent prescribed by the doctor that also worked on serotonin, but that one got flipped into a dangerous street drug. Right. So. There's a whole politics to all of this that is not science at all. And it's all part of this kind of unorganized old boys network conspiracy of silence about how all of this happened and how it all developed. Mm -hmm. And uh, a good example of that is the Manchurian Candidate. All right. Well, I think that's another good opportunity to take a short break here. Uh, we'll come back with... Dr. Colin Ross, and we will talk exactly about that, about the Manchurian candidate, the so-called sleeper, uh, and uh, the mind control techniques that are used successfully to make that a reality. <coughs> we'll be right back with Dr. Colin Ross, my guest tonight on Radio Orbit. We're talking about mind control and the U.S. government's involvement in the funding and research into mind control for many, many years. We'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Colin Ross. Thanks for staying with us. All right, you are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's about 4.24 in the a.m. on September 19th. You're listening to an interview I taped a few weeks ago with Dr. Colin Ross, psychiatrist from Dallas, and we're talking about mind control. And um, stick around uh, in about 35 minutes. Carol Greenspan will be rolling in here, and... She'll be presenting some wonderful music, as she always does, on her pro program called Jewish Spectrum. So stick around for Carol in just about 35 minutes. We'll get right back to my interview with Dr. Ross in a few minutes here. I'm going to take a short music break and uh, enjoy some stuff from the archives, some vinyl from KOPN, The Beatles, on Radio Orbit. In a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody called you, you answered quite slowly. A girl with a kaleidoscope Yeah. 
by a fountain where rocking horse people eat marshmallow pies. Everyone smiles as you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly high. You face the taxis that fear on the shore, waiting to take you away. Train in a station with plasticine porters with looking glass eyes. Suddenly, someone in Paris turns out to go with the riders go by. Tell you 
Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit on KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. Let's get right back into the tail end of this interview with Dr. Colin Ross on Radio Orbit. All right, uh, we're back now with my guest, Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. Dr. Ross has been with us tonight, uh, spending time, and uh, we appreciate all the information that he's sharing with us tonight. We're talking about now the Manchurian candidate and uh, getting a little bit deeper into the topic of mind control. So we're going to get right back to Dr. Ross and uh, and let him uh, let him just continue to spin this yarn that is just just incredible. So I want to do a little quick side story on BZ. Okay, great. Because it illustrates how all this stuff has really been known but not known for a long time. So what on earth is BZ? Well, there's a, a movie called Jacob's Ladder starring Tim Robbins, which is a, a small independent film that came out a while back. I've seen it many years ago, and I, to be honest, I can't quite place what it was about. Well, that's because you can't really tell when you're watching the movie what it's about exactly. Because huh. it's one of those ones that sort of past, present, flashback, what's real, what's not real, and you're kind of lost in it. Okay. But it starts out with a combat scene in Vietnam where these guys are in... Uh, in the jungle, and there's a whole bunch of guns going off, and all of a sudden, everybody just kind of goes crazy and is tripped out on something, huh. and hallucinating, and, and there, a lot of guys are getting killed by friendly fire. And then it's kind of this dreamy, whole, hallucinated, trying to piece together what the story is, and uh, the drug that there are, that everybody's hallucinating on is BZ, in the movie, and there's a couple scenes in there where Tim Robbins is trying to figure out what happened, and he's talking to a chemist who's very paranoid and saying, yeah, BZ, man. I thought, oh, well, that's an interesting movie. Lo and behold, I'm reading the Senate testimony from 1975 when the uh, council, lead counsel for the U.S. Army hands over to the Senate committee a list of about 130 different drugs that were used by the Army in mind control experiments. Okay. One of which is BZ. Are you kidding me? So BZ is a natural, real thing that was used on soldiers without their consent, without their knowing what it was, during the Vietnam War. And somebody in Hollywood knew about that, found out about it, made a movie about it, and got the movie out into public. So this information is circulating around. Wow. And uh, I've talked to uh, Vietnam that's who describes going on an extraction mission way in country, and they land, and it's the same story. There's, they find a bunch of U.S. forces, special forces guys, completely tripped out, kind of picking molecules out of the air. Right. hundred yards away, there's the VC, all tripped out, picking molecules out of the air because they've been sprayed with something. There's an experiment going on of some kind. Okay. He said that happened more than once. Wow. So... Coming back to the Manchurian Candidate, <clears throat> which was a movie, a book and movie in the 50s. Right, really it's just 50s. been remade as a movie with Denzel Washington. Yeah, in fact, when that, when that movie, when I heard about the remake, uh, for whatever reason, I walked by my bookshelf and I saw Bluebird sitting there and I thought, Dang it! I got to call Colin Ross, and I've got to I've got to get him on the air. And that was uh, that was the original uh, sort of impetus to get me to get in touch with you. So oh, I owed all to Denzel Washington. <laughs> well, it, the, that's a good movie, the Denzel Washington version of the Manchurian Candidate. It's quite switched around from the 1950s version that starred Frank Sinatra. Right. But there's brain electrodes in that, 
So when you watch that movie, you think, oh, yeah, good movie. The thing is that brain electrodes are a reality. And were Back reality. in the late 50s, right. they already were able to control people's behavior by pushing buttons on a box. So then, late 50s, how much more miniaturized, computerized, and high-tech do we think it's gotten since then? Obviously, a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, to the point where uh, it's almost incomprehensible if you look at if you look at mathematics and you look at the curve of technology and what it's done over time over the last 50 years, you, you, you find basically an exponential curve. Right, so there's nothing in that Hollywood movie that is not absolutely, based on fact, completely possible. <clears throat> and The Manchurian Candidate, the, the movie, the reason the book and the movie are called The Manchurian Candidate is the basic, in the original Manchurian Candidate in the 50s, the scenario was Frank Sinatra and some other GIs are going through Manchuria during the Korean War, okay. they're captured, and they're taken to a brainwashing center where communist Chinese guys basically uh, hypnotize them, terrorize them, drug them, and they end up back in the United States with amnesia for all of that. And then one of them has been programmed to assassinate a presidential candidate. Okay. And uh, the mother, played by Jessica Lansbury, Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury, that's right. Is is this uh, not very nice mother right. who's in on it, who's his handler in the United States. Right. And he's triggered by uh, Queen of Diamonds, I think it is. It is, the Queen of Diamonds. And what happens is then he flips into this hypnotically created identity who is the assassin, but he has amnesia for that. So, okay, well, that's good fiction. And the uh, lead psychologist in MKUltra testified to the U.S. Senate in the 70s that the mentoring candidate was obviously fiction. But it's not, it's a fact. And I know that again from these documents. And uh, published as early as 1943 and as late as 1971, G.H. Estabrooks describes, he was a psychologist who was at Colgate College in Upper New York, he describes uh, creating and running operations uh, for the War Department during the Second World War, in which he created mentoring candidates. So he hypnotizes a guy, can conditions him, creates this new identity. So he talks about a Marine. He says there's Jones A, Jones B. Jones A is the regular Marine. Jones B is the, the, the mentoring candidate, the artificially created identity. Okay. And what he does is he'll uh, use a hypnotic trigger, which can be a code word. Uh, in the CIA documents, they describe tones over the phone, hand signals, any kind of signal can be used to flip the person to their hypnotic identity. Their alter. Their alter personality. And then they can either be given classified information for a career assignment or they will play the role of a uh, communist subversive, student radical, whatever you want them to do. And they will actually believe that they are a student radical. And so they'll be very convincing and they'll be unaware of their normal regular identity. Hmm. And then what happens is you can flip them back to their regular person who's just a regular marine or a regular whoever who has no knowledge of this mission they've been on so is the which could be career infiltration penetration or assassination missions and he describes running these guys operationally and um, so he could be just telling tall tales but um, my research assistant went up to Colgate College and photocopied a lot of stuff from his archives there which includes his contract with the War Department uh, correspondence between him and J. Edgar Hoover running from the 1930s uh, forward to the late 60s. 
seminars that he gave at a bunch of different military bases on the subject of uses of hypnosis in warfare. Uh, seminars he gave at his own college where FBI and military personnel came to listen. Uh, <clears throat> publications where he and documented MKUltra contractors with top secret clearance were writing together, publishing together, corresponding with each other. <clears throat> so he was very highly connected to all the way up to Jared Hoover. Right. And he, I also have his uh, correspondence with the CIA in the Bluebird Artichoke era, where he's making mentoring candidate proposals. And in a lot of the, the documents, uh, Bluebird and Artichoke, Project Often, MKUltra, uh, it explicitly describes creating new identities, creating amnesia, implanting new memories, wiping out people's memories. It's very clear, it's very detailed. It's not a matter of interpretation or making a guess. The mentoring candidate is absolutely factual. It has been used operationally going back at least as far as the Second World War. Incredible. Now, and I would say well, all the documentation stops basically uh, early 70s. Okay. So after that, we're not talking facts, we're just talking what I believe must be the case. Right, speculation. I would say there's got to be mentoring candidate sleepers in place all around the world being run by all the major terrorist organizations and all the intelligence agencies. Which, you know, it's, I guess it's not any worse than shooting somebody, hypnotize right. them, right. make them believe they're somebody else. But the problem comes back to there's a psychiatrist involved, there's psychiatric mind control. What are the ethics? What's the consent? Right. How is it followed up? What happens to these people afterwards? Right. What happens if one of these people kind of like blows a fuse as a civilian ten years later? Right, which we know has happened many times. Well, it's crazy, and it, you know, it it also uh, it gives perfect plausible deniability. You know, for the uh, uh, for the directors of the operation or whatever, they have a they have a they have a perfect tool because. That tool itself doesn't even know that it performed the op. That's the whole idea. Yeah, it's to that if you're captured, you can resist interrogation, and then if you don't even know you've done the op, this deniability is built. And in order to do that, they would try to bury these things as deep and deep and deep as they could, these altars and stuff, right? Right. And so when you read the stuff from the 40s, it's relatively kind of simple-minded stuff. Mm -hmm. It's almost like. Graduate hypnosis club experiment or something, <laughs> but again, it's got to become way more sophisticated, high tech, with all kinds of layers and levels and codes and right. locking mechanisms. Right. And some of this stuff is described in the documents from the 50s that you can insert a locking mechanism where uh, you have to have the access code in order to get to this level. And then this person, I'm talking about a person inside the person. Right. They don't really know what's going on, but if you give them the following information, then they'll flip to somebody else, and it just goes on. This it goes on and on. forever. Yeah, that's one thing about 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 things like this, and we talked about it a little bit off the air. But what, and and you mentioned right at the beginning of the program about sort of slipping down the rabbit hole, and uh, it really is like that. Once you start researching, it's like uh, one thing leads to another, uh, on and on and on. And in fact. Uh, uh, so far, at least for me, it doesn't seem to have ended yet. There's still much, much to learn and well, lots going on. Well, I think it's, it's uh, on.
on the internet and in the newspapers right now at Abu Ghraib prison. Wow, I, you know, I, I hadn't even, I hadn't even, uh, to be honest, I hadn't even really considered, uh, it, at least in in this, in, in the terms that you and I are talking about, what might have happened there. Well, Seymour Hirsch had an article that was on the internet. I imagine you can find it pretty easily. It's only about, it's within the last month or so, because it's since all those photos came out from Apple Grape. Right, right. I remember Cy Hirsch wrote. Uh, in fact, he was probably one of the main, at least one of the major mainstream reporters that sort of brought that to light. So. Well, it was either Washington Post or New York Times, and he said that the the uh, cryptonym for the operation is copper green. So when this when this stuff comes out, we see first of all we see the photographs. And then the first question is, okay, wait a minute, it's like follow the money. Where did those photographs come from? Right. How did they get out of a highly classified, controlled space to the public? Right. That doesn't happen just, you know, because somebody puts it in an envelope and mails it home by mistake. So, and somebody you can't get into that secure space with a camera just because you're a prankster. I mean, so the, and then you look at the photographs, you see there's a guy with a hood on, standing on a box, with electrodes attached to his genitals. Okay, well, wait a minute. How'd the hood get there? Somebody had to requisition a hood. Somebody had to requisition some wires. I mean, this is all equipment. Right. And so there's there's somebody who requisitioned that. That means there's a purchase order. That means there's a fire. That means there's a transporter. That means there's a shipping and receiving. That means there's a paper trail. Black budget. And that's just the hardware. Right. And so then these photos come out, which is an election year. So you have to wonder about how and why they came out. Mm-hmm. And then... The first thing you hear is, oh, it's just a bunch of out-of-control, alcoholic uh, people who are fooling around at the night shift. So we're going to blame it all on the individuals. Right. It's not a systemic thing, right. And then just in the last month, it just every week, every few days, it comes out a little bit another layer, another layer. Now it's, uh, well, it wasn't just these three or four people that you see on camera. It turns out that there was a couple of other civilian contractors. And then it turns out there's a couple of uh, intelligence people. And then it turns out, well, of course, the people at the top of the command didn't know, and nobody at the Pentagon knew. And then it turns out, oh, well, high-ranking people in the prison knew, like the lead military person responsible for the prison, but it was really just a failure of oversight. So now people are getting in trouble for sloppiness, so to speak. Right. And then now it's coming out in public. Well, no, really, people in the Pentagon knew about it, but that was a failure of oversight on their part. But the thing is, it's not a failure of oversight. It's a program. It's an operation. It has a manual. It has a history. It has a design. It has a plan. There's people who look at it, design it. Somebody types it. It's in computers in the the military intelligence world. And then it's not a low-ranking deal. These are operations that go all the way back to MKUltra. Wow. So then it's sort of like the, uh, the Inquisitors 500 years ago. Right. When they capture a witch, then they want to find out if she really is possessed by a demon. So how do they test that out? Yeah, throw in the water and see if she's going to a rock around her feet or whatever. Right. Yeah. So if she drowns, it really was a demon. Right. No, it was the other way around. If she doesn't drown, well, too bad we made a mistake. 
Right, exactly. Oh, wait a minute, hold on. How's the logic? I've got it. No, it was if she drowned, she wasn't a witch. But they... She wasn't a witch, but it's too bad. If right. she doesn't drown, then she must be possessed by demons. So right, and then they burn her. <laughs> so then that's, the, that's the, what it's like to be one of these low-ranking people to have a grade. If you are ordered as a part of the program by the people up the chain of command to take these pictures and do these things, and you don't follow the orders, then you go to the brig. Right. If you do follow orders and you do carry them out and it leaks out, then you're hung out to dry. You're done. Well, what kind of way is that to run a, a freedom and democracy-based military? Not a good one, Dr. Ross. Not a good one as far as I'm concerned. So, again, it comes back to not being against the military as such, but, I mean, they don't have a license to do anything they want, right? Right. And... These programs, there's psychiatrists involved in these programs, guaranteed for sure. Okay. Well, how do we? Uh, what do we do about it? How do we? Um, how, how do we? Uh, how do we try to try to uh, to bring an end to it, or or, or to so bring some... the main the main problem is basically apathy. Right. Again, like you say, this information is available and uh, it's not hidden. It's out there in the public domain. It's just a matter of people wanting to know about it and getting involved. But it's, it's just I, as individual me. I just take each opportunity offered to me to talk about it and try and get a few more people outraged and irritated. Maybe there'll be a groundswell, and maybe at some time some politician or some member of the medical profession or one of the medical associations will decide to do something about this. Right. And you know, really get serious about it. But uh, I wouldn't put the odds too high. But right. You know, it it, uh, it reminds me of uh, the HRAX experiments, which we talked about a little bit earlier. I wasn't the I wasn't the biggest fan of of Bill Clinton, to be sure, but that was one of the things that he did uh, that I uh, appreciated when when he at least was in office when those records were released. Right. Um, however, I did think it was interesting that they were released on the same day that the OJ uh, trial, um, the verdict was given out, and and. Uh, and it never ceases to amaze me how they uh, plan the release of some of this information and stuff. In any case, well, um, that is the end of our time. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Colin Ross from the Ross Institute of Psychological Trauma. You can visit Dr. Ross and get more information on much of what we've been talking about tonight at www.rossinst.com. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Check us out on the web, www.radioorbit.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. Radio Orbit, KOPN. Thanks for listening. Wait until the war is over And we're both a little older the unknown soldier. is where the news is read. Television children fed. Unborn living, living dead. Bullets, guns, bullets,
That was The Doors with Unknown Soldier, a fitting finish to tonight's program with Dr. Colin Ross. We've been talking about mind control and U.S. covert funding and research of mind control technologies for many, many years, and I hope you enjoyed the program. I've got, I've got one more song. I promised I'd play it for Dr. Ross uh, uh, to finish out this interview. So it'll be about three minutes, and you'll be, uh, you'll be back uh, with Carol Greenspan and Jewish Spectrum in just a second. This is The Animals with We've Got to Get Out of This Place. In the stereo part of the city, when the sun refused to shine, people tell me it ain't no use in My little girl, you're so young and pretty. One thing I know is true. Oh, your time is you. See my daddy in bed is lying. Daddy is there turning Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, you know, baby, can I know it too, baby? 